This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. When everything seems to be going against you, remember that the airplane takes off against the wind, not with it. Henry Ford. I thought this would be an applicable quote for my guest today. Welcome, Alex Douglas. Hello, Alex. Hi, thanks for having me. You are welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. We have a lot to cover, so let's get started. And the best place to start, I find, is at the beginning. So maybe could you please take us through your journey of a child to joining the police force? So I grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Um, I attended West Scranton High School. Uh, after that, I, uh, you know, I a neighbor friend of mine was actually joining the uh, Pennsylvania State Police. He was kind of going through the process of uh, getting in. It's like a six month process of, uh, you know, background checks, um, oral interviews, um, uh, written tests, everything like that. It's, a, it's like I said, it's about a six month process. And, you know, it kind of everything that he had to go through, it kind of caught my attention. And, uh, you know, I said to my father, I said, I always wanted, like, I'm from a military background. My grandfather was a lieutenant colonel in World War II. And I said, oh, wow. Yeah. And I, I always, you know, found that for me personally, like, I have a brother and he wasn't really interested in that kind of stuff, but I, it always caught my attention. And I was always interested in the military and, you know, what my grandfather did and everything like that. And, um, you know, he would tell me stories about, you know, what he went through when my father would tell me stories about what my grandfather went through and everything like that and different army bases he was stationed at. And um, like, it was always interesting to me just growing up as a young child. And my father's actually a history teacher. So um, he's a historian in like Civil War era stuff and Vietnam War and again, obviously World War Two and World War One and uh, so he always had these books laying around. I'd pick them up. We'd always go visit the like you know Civil War battlefields growing up and everything like that. So that actually, uh, like I said, it caught my attention. Always you know kind of military and then you know after September 11th, um, you know I I didn't really know anyone at that point in time that was going overseas to uh, to fight in Afghanistan or Iraq. But uh, I told my father, I said, you know, instead of going to college, I think I'd rather join the military. And this was around 2001. So uh, he said, you know, to me, he said, some of these guys are going to be coming back. I saw it with Vietnam. You know, a lot of these guys are going to be coming back, you know, missing limbs, missing arms, um, you know, severely injured, if not, you know, dead. And um, it, it's very dangerous. I'd rather you go to college and then decide, you know, go for four years and then decide from from there on out on what you want to do. And so that's what I ended up doing. So I went to the University of Scranton and I earned um, two degrees, one in finance and one in um, uh, international economics uh, within four years. And, um, you know, it was, it was right around my junior year while I was at the university that I was going for these interviews in New York City and Philadelphia for finance and economics. And, you know, I was just like, you know, I can't sit behind a cubicle and crunch numbers. Like I, I'm a hands-on type of person. Like I have to 
again, the, the military was still sticking in my head. Everything like that was still sticking in my head. And I said, my neighbor was going through our process as uh, a Pennsylvania state trooper. You know, it was, it was, he said it's, it's called like a paramilitary organization is what our department's based off and what our academy is based off. And uh, I said to my father, it was like junior year, uh, at the university. And I said, you know, I want to do something more. Why don't I, why don't I try going into the state police? Uh, I think that's really something I really want to do. It's a good career. Um, you get a great pension, great benefits. And he was actually all about that. So, uh, so he said, you know what, you're safe for doing that than, than going overseas and, and being in the military at this point, because that, you know, that's the time that this was about 2004, 2005. And that's when, you know, a lot of guys were coming back, uh, injured and, um, some guys, you know, unfortunately deceased. And uh, he said, you know, this will be a safer, safer position for you to go into the state police. So 2005, I literally took my last final exam at the university on a Friday and Sunday. I was in the academy in uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania. And uh, it's a seven, seven month process that you stay at the academy and go through all this military type training. And they call it paramilitary in a sense that it's kind of established like how West Point Academy is where, you know, you're doing a lot of military style drilling and at the same time you're doing a lot of studying and book work. And um, the book work came easy because I just got out of college, but the, uh, you know, military and training aspect of that was actually a little difficult because it was something totally new. Like I said, I was in college partying, having a good time. And then all of a sudden it's like, boom, you're, <laughs> you're in this like academy. And it's very strict and everything like that. So uh, once I graduated from the academy, that was uh, December of 2005, I was stationed at Frackville Barracks, which is in Schuylkill County. It was about a little over an hour drive uh, from my hometown in Scranton to uh, where I was stationed. So I was kind of happy with that because it wasn't too far. Some guys were getting stationed two, three hours away from their hometown. So I was kind of grateful for where, I, for, for where I was. And in Schuylkill County, it was like a different world down there. I mean, it was just, it, as you want to say, like redneck, redneck hillbillies. They took care of their own problems. <laughs> you know? The Hatfields and the McCoys. Exactly. Exactly like that. It was different. You know, I just remember first starting, I had to drive around with my coach uh, for uh, 30 days. And there was this guy walking down the street and he had literally half a face. And then I said, what, what happened to that guy? Like, who is that guy? And he said, well, he tried to commit suicide you know, years ago. And obviously it didn't work out for him, but he's missing half his face because he shot off half his face. So it's a, it was just like a crazy, crazy, uh, you know, sightseeing tour, I should say for myself down there. Oh my word. Yeah. Just crazy stuff. And, you know, I was 22, 23 at the time. So, um, you know, like I said, I was still in that college mode, but, uh, uh, so I spent, I had to spend at the time three years down there and, um, then I put my transfer card in and I wanted to get closer to home. And I knew a lieutenant at the time who uh, was working out of uh, the barracks up here, which is called Dunmore Barracks. And he said, you know, I could try to get you to one of our closer stations to Honesdale. Well, at the time, um, I was, you know, I, I gave up. I was staying in Frackville, but I had an apartment down there and I gave up the apartment knowing that I was going to be transferring up here in a couple months. So I was kind of commuting for my parents' house back and forth. And it was actually like around Memorial Day weekend of 2008, where uh, an individual actually tried to break into my parents' house. He was a heroin addict 
and um yeah it was like two in the morning and i went out you know i basically unfortunately i tuned the guy up and uh uh, some shots were fired back and forth and uh luckily nobody was hit and uh, the local police ended up uh, getting them after i pinned them down and uh that kind of held me up because my transfer, because they had it in my department activated me as an on-duty trooper at the time, even though I was off duty, I got held up uh, through a, you know, we have, we have to go through an internal investigation whenever there's a shooting or shots fired. And um, so unfortunately I got held up and this Lieutenant that I knew that was supposed to put me at Honesdale barracks said, you know what, the spot's actually taken. Now you got to go to Blooming Grove. And I was like, Oh God, everyone dreads Blooming Grove barracks. It's like (laughs) all the New York city, New Jersey people coming in, you know, and it's just, uh, nobody cares, you know, and it's just, it's rough up there. They said, it's like call after call. So I was like, Oh, this, this is a bummer, you know? But, uh, so that's where I ended up going was Blooming Grove barracks in 2008. And, um, you know, I, my story, you know, I, I always worked midnight shifts when I was in Frackville and I continued. I, I requested them up at Blooming Grove to work midnight shifts. So for years I worked a, a midnight shift uh, and they always require our department requires two people in a car, two people in a, a car in the midnight shift. So we had two cars with two two troopers in each car. So that was four uh, troopers working the midnight shift in essence. And we had a dispatcher and that was it. That was who, who was on call for, for those kind of shifts. So, uh, you know, if you want, like, I'm going to get into my incident a little bit. Um, you know, I, I saw a lot of stuff uh, when I first went up there, you know, you know, a lot of, uh, unfortunately, you know, motor, motor vehicle accidents, stuff like that. And, you know, involving either older people, younger kids, which was kind of hard, you know, to deal with at the time um, to see that. And, you know, it started in 2014. I was still working midnight shifts, but, I, you know, the, the morning of September 12th. Let's stop uh, for a sec. I want to go sure. back. Can I go back a little bit? Were you married yet at this time? No, no, I okay. was single. Okay. So as the years progressed being a police officer, did you notice any changes in the public? Like, had people become, because now you see the lack of respect for police officers did you notice any of that through the, your career as maybe a downward trend for the way that the public treated police officers or held the respect for you? Was it harder or did you not notice that? No, absolutely. I, I agree 100%. Yes. As my career went on from 2005 till even now, um, especially now, it, it's scary how it is right now, to be honest with you. Yeah, I definitely saw a downward trend when I started in 2005. And like I said, Frackville and Schuylkill County, that was a different world down there. Um, the troopers working there were a lot of older guys. So they would tell me these crazy stories about, you know, like somebody would come in for a domestic incident. A, a gentleman would come in for and say, my wife, you know, beat me up and they would be like, get the heck out of here. Like, don't waste our time. Like, you can't do that now. You know what I mean? And they're telling me these stories. But just like from what I saw from 2005 to now, it's it's insane how the public's view and especially the younger generation has changed so much and you know honestly disrespect uh disrespecting the police and just the public in general it's it's insane how that has changed and in my career you know i was injured in 2014 so i worked i was working for nine years and just in those nine years being on the job and being active i saw that change for sure no doubt where do you think that change came from yeah honestly i'm 
you know, a lot of people blame social media and everything like that. And I think that does have a, a factor in it. Um, you know, if one person does something to the police and, you know, they post it on social media or something, I think a lot of people get these crazy ideas and then they start doing it thinking they can get away with it. Or I, I my my personal opinion is it's how you're raised. Every time when I was younger and we'd be driving down the highway and you'd see a state trooper drive by, you would be like, oh, crap. You know, <laughs> like you're you're driving like I, you don't want to go anywhere near that state trooper. Not today. You know, they're on the side of the road fighting with you and everything. And that was for any, you know, police officer in essence. You know, you always had respect for them. If I did it like my father would, you know, you'd get beaten. I mean, that's how it was. You'd get a whoop, whooping, you know what I mean, <laughs> growing up. And I think that generation has changed and it's gotten so soft, um, especially, you know, like I see these kids, they, you know, blowing through stop signs and everything like that, throwing like the middle finger. They don't care. It's just, there's no respect anymore. And I think it's, it's the way it's how some of it's social media, I think, but I think it's a bigger part of how you're raised, how you're brought up. I, I think that's, that's the problem. I think people don't care anymore. You see the lawlessness, especially in the big cities. I was watching the news this morning and they were talking about San Francisco and LA, how I think, I, I, it was just in this last week, like 50 people st stormed Nordstrom and took over $100,000 worth of goods there. There are no repercussions. People no. are, just feel fine about going in and taking what they want because there are no repercussions. And in fact, I don't know if you saw where I loved it, where this man came in and tried to rob a convenience store. And I think it was the owner and somebody else that were like beating him with the cane. Did you see it? And now they're in trouble. Yes, I you know, it's amazing. I was actually at my parents' house when I was watching that. It was on the news. And, you know, my father was like, good for him. You know, good for, you know, good for the guy. I mean, he got what he had coming to him. I mean, why you're there robbing their possessions, their store. They're trying to make an earn a living and earning. And that's their business. And you're coming in trying to steal their stuff. I mean, what did you expect to happen? You expected to get away with it? And like you said, as soon as I heard some people were saying, oh, they should be charged with aggravated assault. No, they they were protecting themselves and doing what they were supposed to do. And I mean, that's my opinion. You know, honestly, I wish there was more people out there that would do stuff like that. And I also wonder too, those people that do those things, are they that hopeless about their situation? Do we feel sympathy for them at all or... Because I don't, but I, but you know, that's what a lot of people want us to feel is the sympathy for these people that come in and cause mass damages and crime. Who are these people? That's exactly. I agree a hundred percent with it. That, like these people that were on the news were saying, oh, they, they, these two uh, owners should be charged with simple assault or uh, aggravated assault. And it's, it's like, are you sympathizing for this individual that just tried to destroy the inside? And that's what he was doing was destroying the inside of their store, let alone stealing everything, but just throwing stuff off the shelves and everything. Like, like, should you sympathize with him? Why would you sympathize with him? But I think that's what I said before. I think it's this generation. It's just getting worse and worse and, and people are getting more soft. And it's just and that's what's causing these problems, like you said. I know the answer to this already, but I'm going to ask it anyway, and I'm sure I'll get a smirk out of you at least, at the very least. Is it more dangerous to be a police officer today? Is the threat of violence much higher today? Are they worried? Like, I don't know how 
police officers even now go out and give tickets. I don't because the ones there by themselves, to me, that would make my adrenaline pump if you're by yourself and you're pulling someone over because when you started, you didn't know what was in the car. Okay, whatever. But now how much worse is it to pull someone over? It's scary. Absolutely. Um, again, because it goes back to this disrespect and everything, they don't care. You know, they don't care who you are. Um, like I said, when I was growing up, you would be scared of a police officer coming up to the car. You would have your hands on the steering wheel. You you wouldn't pull anything. Now, now they're, you know, they have anything and everything in that vehicle and you don't know what they're, what they're going to do or how crazy they are. I mean, I think the mental aspect of society has also gone way downhill too. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Yes. I'm going to smirk at that because Yes, it's definitely way, way more dangerous, a dangerous situation. And it goes back, I, I think, like we were saying, um, you know, it just I think people are they feel that they can get away with a lot more now. And I think and I'm going to blame that again, too, on social media, because, you know, if a police officer does something that he, he, they give the perspective that they did something wrong, well, they'll lambaste you in the media over it, you know, and. I personally know other troopers that I've spoke to recently. I haven't been back to work yet. Um, and we'll get into that later if you want. But so I haven't worked for quite some time out in the road. But speaking to these other troopers that have, yeah, there's they're scared to death because they don't know, you know, double, triple thinking themselves. Should I pull out a weapon? Should I pull out my gun in this instance um, if I don't see something? Because I'm going to get sued or I'm going to get lambasted on the media like they don't want to lose their job. They don't, you know, God forbid, go to jail or something for just one, you know, little mistake. So they're really double thinking themselves, which is very, very unsafe as a police officer or anyone in law enforcement to even do that. I mean, you're trained in a specific way and manner to act without almost thinking, but you, you they drill into our heads at the academy. This is how you react to this. This is how you react to that. And you know, I wouldn't be alive today if I didn't follow the, that procedure. And these poor guys, I mean, I don't even know how the training is now at the academy and how they're dealing with it. But um, yeah, it's definitely a scary situation just from talking to these guys and seeing what you and I see on the news and everything. It's just, it's crazy. Are we in danger? Well, I feel like we already are at that point where there aren't enough police officers on the street because so many of you are taking early retirement, changing professions, because not only, like you said, are they worried about becoming physically injured, what is going to happen if someone doesn't like the way I do this or that, or even if it's totally within the realms of what they're supposed to do, I'm going to get in trouble. So screw it. It's not even worth it. I don't get paid enough. There's no respect. So I'm out of here. I'm going to retire or I'm going to go find another profession. Yeah, absolutely. And I know guys that, that have done that. And I know a couple of years ago, there was a mass retirement with the NYPD guys um, that they couldn't even fill the spots. I mean, it was like thousands and thousands of officers that mass retired and retired early because for those reasons um i know our guys personally that you know we could buy back if we were in the military you could buy back some military time and retire a couple of years earlier and uh, speaking to a, a bunch of guys that's what they're trying to do to just get out because it's just it's too much at this point unfortunately does the government hold any responsibility whether it be local state federal do any of them hold responsibility for what is happening 
I think they hold it to a certain point. Um, you know, I don't, I don't exactly know. I haven't read that deep into it. You know, you always hear about defunding the police in certain states and certain towns and cities. And I don't know if that's actually true or not. I haven't read that deep into it. But I mean, if that's the case, that's pretty sad. I mean, you know, we're the front line. We're would you defund the military if, if we were going to war? Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's in essence, the same type of circumstance. Um, I, like I said, I don't know how true that is. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think some of them, especially lawmakers and stuff, they should be some of them should be held responsible because some of these laws that they're passing, you know, are, are making society what it is, in my opinion. Um, just, you know, it's letting people get away with problem with with stuff that that you should like 10 years ago, 10 years ago, you wouldn't be able to get away with some of the laws that they pass, I think you know, it's giving them more freedom and they feel that they can get away with. I can't remember, but I swear I heard in some cities, it might be San Francisco or whatever. There's some law that if it's like a thousand dollars or less that they're stealing, that you just let them go. Something like that. I could be totally yeah. wrong about that, but I swear I heard something about that. And that is nuts to me. I've heard that too. And like I said, I don't know how true it is, but I did hear that same thing. I think it was like within Lowe's or like Home Depot or something like that. If they stole, yeah, it was like a thousand or, or under five hundred dollars or something. They just let them yeah. walk out. The and how many and you, times do you see these on video where people are just standing by, letting them take what they want because everybody is so afraid of repercussions? <laughs> the good guy gets punished, and so they're just watching these people take it out because, like, I don't want to get in trouble. Yep. Yeah, I don't know if you saw the video. Of, uh, it kind of reminded me of what you're talking about. The I, I believe he was a veteran and he was in the gas station and two kids tried to come in and rob the gas station. And no. he, had a, he had like a bag of soda or something in his arm and he just, you know, he clocked both of them in the face and they both went running out the door. And it's like, I, I mean, did see know. the one at the gas station. I don't know if you saw about the one that was filling his get his car with gas and two guys came up to try to carjack him and he was smart. He just turned gas hose on. <laughs> I love yeah, that. I, we need we need more fast thinking like that. I know. I know. And that's how this this veteran was, you know, he he hit these two kids and they went running right out the front door after he hit them, you know. Did um, you have but, any close calls before the day of your traumatic injury? Yes. Yeah. I had a lot. I was, uh, I was probably shot at at least, I think it was four times. Um, there was numerous times where I had to pull out my weapon and point it at people. Um, you know, and most of it was, they were back in the day, you know, a lot of people were on drugs. Like I remember this one individual, he was, he was pretty big, pretty big dude. Uh, I think he was like six, five and he was just like a farmer. He was down in Schuylkill County. And he was all high up on like PSP or uh, PCP and method, method, methadone and everything like that. And he was just out of his mind. So it was like, you know, what are you going to do? So, you know, I, I had to take a shotgun and hit him in the, in the face with it just to get him down on the ground because we didn't have backup like coming in a couple minutes. We, they were about like a half hour out. So it's like, you got to use what you got to use. And at the time we didn't have tasers. We were just in, they were just implementing tasers into our program. So we didn't have tasers at the time. So it was like, you got to use what you got to use. So, but yeah, there's, there's uh, a couple of times, you know, that I, I was in some sketchy situations before this incident. Whenever you pull someone over, is your adrenaline pumping or not really? Oh yeah. Every time. I mean, 
from what I remember, like when I would pull a car over, you would kind of get a feel. You would see who's in it, like passing by before you pull the car over. And you, you see if it's like a family or something like that. In my from my experience, you, you would be more uh, relaxed, you know, as you're approaching that vehicle. But even today, like we're, we're just saying today, like you don't even know there could be a family in a car and the father driving the car and the father could be kind of crazy out of his mind. And he doesn't care about his kids or his wife or anything. And and, you know, start firing back or doing something crazy or start fighting with you on the side of the road. You don't know. So I think like that's when we were talking earlier. Has th have times changed? Yes. I think I would still be my adrenaline would still be flowing even if I saw a family drive by and I was going to pull them over. Yeah, I think right now in this in this time and period, I, I would definitely have adrenaline flowing nonstop. You know, it's kind of scary. All right. September 12th, 2014. Unpack that day for us. So September 12, 2014, uh, I, I just got off a previous midnight shift and one of our supervisors asked me if I wanted an overtime shift in a construction zone. So I took it. It was a couple extra you know, bucks in my pocket. And I, I got out that construction shift. Probably it was around like noontime. And I said, you know, I'm going to be back in about eight, you know, 10 hours. Can I just take the patrol car home? I'm already in uniform. And we used to carpool out of a, so the Blooming Grove Barracks, let me go back. Blooming Grove Barracks, where I was stationed, was about 30 minutes from where I was residing at the time, a 30 minute drive one way. And all the other guys, most, I would say 80% of the other troopers that worked at that barracks um, were from this area that I'm from. So a lot of us would carpool. We would park our cars near someone's house or whatever, and then carpool up. So I said, can I take the, you know, patrol car home? My personal vehicle's already up at the station and I'll pick the other guys up and, uh, you know, we'll go into work together, the three other guys that I work with. So that's what we ended up doing. We were driving up. Our shift started at 11 p.m. It was a Friday, uh, Friday night. And, um, you know, it was 11 p.m. is our shift change. So some guys start heading home on the highway around like 1030 or so. They'll wait at the end of our, our patrol zone and then they'll head home after that. But a lot of guys left our station earlier, you know, and that's what the, that's what we did. It was just common practice. And um, so we pulled up at our station. It was probably, you know, 20 to 11. Uh, the other guys that I work with, they had to go in and get changed. And I was outside um, actually uh, with a, I, I was getting a bag from the patrol car that I parked because I was in training to run. Um, it's called the Steam Town Marathon. It's a local marathon that was coming up in October. So I was training for that. And I was supposed to go running the next morning with a friend of mine. We we're supposed to do like an eight mile run or something. So I was taking a gym bag out of the patrol car that I parked for that next morning and putting it in my personal vehicle out in our parking lot when I heard what sounded like a gunshot going off. And first thing that came to my head was, you know, there's a guy that he lives down the road. He does a fireworks stand. You know, it's right after Labor Day, basically, because it's September 12th. It's this guy's just lighting off whatever probably he had left over from Labor Day weekend and from the summer. So it's probably just him lighting off fireworks. Well, then I heard a, a couple other shots go off simultaneous. So as I, I heard those shots, I looked up where our front door of our barracks is. And I noticed an individual laying down, um, you know, on the sidewalk. Well, the second thing that came to my head is great. This previous shift just pulled over you know a drunk driver and what our process is is you bring that drunk driver back to 
our station, you fingerprint them, process them, and then you call somebody to come and pick them up for a ride because obviously they can't drive. So I'm thinking somebody did this, but somebody is supposed to be watching this individual until they get that ride or get picked up. And all I'm thinking is it's the end of shift. These guys don't care. They left them in the lobby for us to deal with. And now he wandered outside and fell and smashed his head off the curb. And now I have to go deal with it as a senior trooper on that shift. So as I'm like, now I'm going to go deal with this as I'm walking closer to the front door of our barracks. Now I'm, I'm probably about, um, I would say probably about 30, 40 yards away okay. uh, in the, we have like a lower parking lot area. And then the front of our station, it's up on like kind of a hill. So there's steps that go up to the front of that station. So it was up on a hill. And like I said, I was about 40 yards away. Uh, as I was approaching that individual, I could see that it was one of our troopers in a Pennsylvania State Police uniform laying there. And I'm like, what, what, like, what is happening here? And I'm thinking, did he just shoot himself? Like, did he commit suicide? And uh, did you see any gun. blood at the time? I, I can't, you know, I, I don't remember seeing any blood. I, I do remember he had his gun out in his hand. He had his, his sidearm out, his pistol. And did you have and, your gun with you? Yeah. So okay. I had my gun as fully armed, fully dressed, like okay. I was threaded, uh, luckily. So I took out my sidearm thinking, like, I, I still don't know what's going on here. You know, um, like, did he commit suicide? Is somebody shooting it? Like, what, what is going on? So as I'm looking at him closer, that's when I noticed that there, I didn't really notice too much blood, but he had a, like a, a exit, like a entry wound up here, like through his neck, almost like lower part of his neck. And he was just laying there and, you know, I, he, I believe he was de deceased at the time and I knew exactly who he was and his, you know, his name's Corporal Brian Dixon and he was the prior shift supervisor. And still, I didn't know what was going on. Now, to me, this seemed like this was like a half hour going on. But, you know, in essence, it's only not even a couple of minutes. And the only thing I could think about is he was shot because there was another exit wound through his shoulder. And I'm thinking, how can you, sh you know, why would he shoot himself that way? It's, it was just odd. So I'm like, where's the shots coming from at this point? Is it from the inside of our lobby? Is it around the other side or is it across the street? I don't know. But the strangest thing you know, is, um, and I relive this, you know, a lot. Um, and as I tell my story, especially with my friend Earl Granville, I just had this feeling as I'm, at, you know, looking over this uh, poor trooper, you know, I'm, I'm, I have this feeling that, you know, something bad is going to happen at this point. Like, like to you or just in general? To, to me. Okay. Like, I, and that something's going to happen to me, but this is my job. You can't run away from it. I was always taught again by my grandfather and father, you run towards the gunfire. You don't run away from it. And this is how hey, we as a side note, Alex, I would run yep. away. <laughs> Let me stop here for a second, because I always say this to all of you when I talk to you and you're headed towards the gunfire. I don't think a lot of you understand that for the majority of us, like you don't think it's a big deal. It's just like, that's what I'm supposed to do. For the majority of us, we would run away from the gunfire. And that sets you apart. I know you don't understand that. At least I think a lot of you don't, but it's so true. And that says something about your character and who you are, because most of us, we're going to run. We're going to hide. I'm going to run. <laughs> I'm going to hide. 
And I, I know tro- other troopers that told me the same thing, that they, they would have ran the other way or got to safety or something like that, you know. And, um, and you know, it's it's basic instinct. And I, there's nothing wrong with that. Like you said, just the mentality. And <clears throat> again, it was how I was brought up. It was how I was raised. And uh, but based on the training I had, all I'm thinking about is I have to get this uh, Corporal Dixon inside to safety. I, I, I'm pretty sure he's unfortunately deceased, but either way, we don't leave a brother or a sister behind. We, I'm bringing him inside. I'm getting him out of this, this, you know, hot zone, fire zone, you know, but I just had that feeling that something bad is really going to happen. And, you know, I leaned down to grab his left foot and just to try to pull him inside, at least get him into the doors of our lobby. And as I bent down to do that, it was like the worst pain of my life. Like I, I, didn't see it coming, but if I had eyes in the back of my head, that's what it felt like that I saw coming and I got shot right through the left side of my back and it went right through my intestines and right out through, uh, down at an angle through my, uh, right leg. Um, and I dropped instantly. I just, it was the worst pain I've ever felt. Like I said, it felt like somebody took a baseball bat and just cut me right across the back and I dropped. Uh, I couldn't feel anything. And now at this point I'm like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be any good to him if I get shot again, because I'm going to be in the same boat. I'm going to be dead, you know? So another instinct I came in, I got to get inside. So the bullet that went through me actually shattered um, like spider web, our glass doors to the front of our station. And our station is actually based off. So we have those two front doors. We have a lobby area and then we have a heavy wooden door that actually goes in to uh, the rest of the station where the troopers are and our offices and everything like that. But in that lobby area, you have we have a glass window, bulletproof glass window where a dispatcher sits, you know, behind a desk and a secretary and whoever comes in, they can you know help service them and whatever needs they need. So I had to get inside. So I just went right through these this spider web glass doors, both forearms right through and. I'm dragging my legs and I make it in. And all I'm thinking about is, and again, we weren't trained for this. There was no training for this type of incident, but all I'm thinking is whoever's shooting from us, it's obviously coming across the street at this point. Like I knew just how I was shot that somebody or multiple people are across the street and that's where the gunshots coming from. So I'm thinking I have to crawl across the perimeter of the cinder block lobby and get to that wooden door but i can't just go straight across because if i go straight across whoever's shooting could see where i'm i'm going and take another shot at me and again that was just instinct that was you know i always joke around my my two best friends that i grew up with since we were seven they always joked around that my dad would make me watch war movies and stuff and i said you know my dad saved my life watching these war movies because that's probably where i picked it up from to have that instinct so i always joke around with them but um, I don't know. I don't know what made me made me do that. Like I said, it was probably our type of training that we had and everything. And it just set in and I crawled slowly through the perimeter of this lobby and I'm dragging my legs because at this point I can't move them. I'm can't in... move either one of your legs. No. How did no, you I, make it in? I just on my, you know, on my elbows, on my forearms, I'm just dragging my body back, you know. And um, are you feeling pain now at that point? Or is it just the adrenaline so much that? Yeah, I think it was like adrenaline and shock just set in. So I wasn't feeling anything. And that's why, like, I thought 
I'm laying in this lobby and it felt like I was laying in this lobby for a half hour with thoughts going through my head. Obviously it wasn't a half hour. It was probably a couple seconds, but you know, I tell everyone there was a couple of main thoughts that went through my head at this point. Number one was the biggest and most important. Am I paralyzed? Cause I can't feel anything below my waist. And I'm thinking, how am I going to run? Like I was preparing for this race. I used to run all the time. I loved it. And now my dream, like this, this was part of my life. This was a purpose for me to do this running. And now like, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to do it again. I'm going to be bound to a wheelchair for the rest of my life. So this, this is what I'm thinking of. And as I'm still dragging myself, you know, I'm thinking of, and it's kind of on the funny side is, well, I'm going to be out of work for quite some time. <laughs> this is going to be, it's not so bad. You know, if I'm going to be out of work, I could, it's like vacation. So like just a lot of crazy stuff was going through my head at the time. And um, I finally made it to that, that wooden door and a couple of other two troopers came out through that door and uh, you know, I, I let them know real quick. I'm like, shut that door. I'm like, somebody's shooting across the street. That's what's going on. You know, don't come out in this lobby. So they reopened the door again, grabbed me by the arm. The one guy was, he's a big trooper and just grabbed me and dragged me right inside to the, to uh, you know, a safe safe spot inside the building there uh one of the offices what's and your bleeding like at this point do you know i don't know at that point um i know like you know after the whole thing was done and over with they said our lobby was like a bloodbath and the only two people that got shot were corporal brian dixon who unfortunately passed away and myself so i'm thinking i mean they ended up bringing brian's body back through the lobby but i think it was I'm going to say it was more my blood because it's just uh, from what doctors said that that cavity where I got shot. So I got shot like through the pelvic area, basically. And I didn't know this at the time, but it's, I guess, one of the biggest, um, you know, blood holding cavities of the human body is is that that pelvic area. And I, I didn't know that. And even when I got inside, when they pulled me to safety, I'm thinking, I'm like, well, I'm not going to die because it feels like I got shot through the legs. You know, and you see in these create in these movies that people get shot in the legs all the time, which is and they always survive, which is not true, you know, but but that's what it felt like. I got shot through the legs, even though my it felt like it went through my back, but I'm thinking it went through my legs, so I'm not bleeding that much, you know. Did but, you ever feel like I, passing out? No, no, I didn't feel like like I remembered everything. Yeah, it was kind of kind of crazy. So as I got in into the lobby, the troopers, there was one trooper who was a veteran who, he, you know, and it's crazy. We always used to make fun of the guy because he was all about like military and the army and everything like that. Like, we're like, okay, you were in the army, you're, you're fighting a war, leave it there. You're fighting a different war here. But he would always carry quick uh, clot with him in his bag. And we're like, why are you carrying that crazy stuff? Like that was at the in the war, not here. And thank God he did because he carried that and they were dumping at my wound. So to try to, you know, cloud up the wound a little bit. But, uh, you know, one of the things, too, that came that sticks in my head every day is uh, at that point in time, a couple other troopers were able to bring one of our patrol vehicles around to the front of the station and get uh, use that as a barricade. And then they they dragged Brian Dixon's body inside to the lobby and. The next thing I remember is I'm laying five feet away from this body of this coworker of mine staring at him and he's not staring back at me. And that's that was like one of the biggest things that still stays in my head to this day. How long but, did it take for them to get the shooter? Uh, they So uh, uh, let me continue and then I'll, okay. I'll tell you. Okay. The kind of, it goes into that story. Okay. About the, the shooter. uh 
um, so what ended up happening, he uh, took off because he, he got scared when I got in the lobby um, and he didn't know where I went. He, he was he was expecting to kill me and that didn't happen. So he went on a run and took off. Um, but I was medevac to one of our hospitals nearby. And right when I got to that hospital is when that pain, the shock and adrenaline stopped, pretty much stopped. And it was the worst pain in my life. I'm like, please put me out. Please put me out and do surgeries. And that's what ended up happening shortly after. So what happened was they didn't know our department, you know, they didn't know what was still happening, how many people were shooting at us, why they were shooting at us. They did multiple interviews Apparently, a couple of days later, now where our barracks is, is a it's like a heavily wooded hunting area. There's a lot of hunting cabins and stuff like that. It's not like out where there's houses nearby or anything like that. So um, this gentleman, I guess, a couple of days later was walking his dog and found this Jeep that was stuck in like a swamp area. And, um, you know, he called he called our guys and said, you know, there's some Jeep stuck in a swamp down here. Nobody's around it. So one of our guys went there. Now, by this time, they already found the shell casings in the woods from from him shooting us. Um, so they knew what caliber rifle it was. And it was like a 308 round that he shot us with. Inside this vehicle was the individual. I believe it was his ID, his driver's license, the same type of ammunition that we were shot with. And I guess a couple other stuff like backpacks and stuff like that. And um you know, long story short, he went on the run. He was he was on the run for 48 days in those woods. And we had the U.S. Marshal searching for him. We had like multiple, multiple organizations, the FBI tactical unit, Border Patrol came up the Black Hawk helicopter. We had state police from New York, Maryland, Connecticut, uh, New Jersey, like our special teams unit, um, and our CERT team, you know, all those guys. Everyone was looking for him for 48 days. And our administration at the time, who was excellent, just set up different grid areas and different patterns. And they're trying to track cell phone coverage and everything like that. But what he was doing was he was uh, he had a laptop with him, apparently, and he was watching the news and watching kind of like where we were going for the search. And he was tapping into the Wi-Fi networks of these hunting cabins because nobody was on. It was still you know, late September, early October. So nobody was hunting yet until November. And he was tapping into the Wi-Fi. So he was using the cabins to eat in, the food and shower. He was actually showering in the cabins and stuff. But this went on for 48 days that they were searching for him. That's what made this incident so crazy and so, um, so uh, you know, outspoken in the media, I should say. What then were the extent of your injuries? So the extent of my injuries, so, um, you know, I had an entry wound on my left side of my lower back, um, nothing really big there. It put a golf size hole through my pelvic bone. Um, most of my damage, and I am sure like you've talked to other veterans that were probably injured or shot, uh, they'll tell you the exit wound is where there's going to be the most damage. And um, it was about almost the size of a baseball ball, baseball, that size hole on the exit wound side, which was my right hip area. So it shattered my right hip. It shattered my femur and my right leg and then severed the uh, sciatic nerve on that side. Also, when it went through it, uh, it uh, hit part of my small intestine and colon area. So it severed some of that too. So I had to have like a colostomy bag on for nine months. Um, That's not fun. No, that you know what? And I tell people this all the time and I, I feel bad for people that have to have those. And um, that was the worst part 
of all, the extent of all my injuries, that was by far the most mental and physical draining part of the whole experience was that colostomy bag. It was terrible. It was absolutely terrible because you can't move. You can't do anything, you know, and I wanted to be active again, you know, yeah. and that just really held me back. And fortunately for me, I went to a really good surgeon out in New York City at Mount Sinai Hospital, and um, she was able to uh, reconnect everything. Um, but they they did have to remove two feet of my small intestine uh, because of the wound. But not, you know, she she put me back together and uh, reversed everything. And right now, like I'm I'm living the life. Like I I I go and see her once a year, and I said, you know what? I said I, I feel. She's like, how do you feel? And I said, I feel better now than when I did even before the shooting. So, <laughs> so I don't know what you did, but you did good. But yeah, so I had to wear the colostomy bag. They had to put an iron or a, a titanium rod in my femur. Um, and I actually became very infected up in my hip area. Um, the hospitals around here back home, they didn't know how to deal with this type of injury, this type of wound. So I was actually sent out to uh, to New York. Uh, I went to Mount Sinai and the hospital uh, for special surgery in New York City. And the doctors were phenomenal. They cured the infection. They um, removed those plates in my hip. They removed those. Um, they put like a, a spacer a hip in and then did a total hip replacement. And they had to take the rod out and put another rod in my femur. Um, but I still suffered. Even after I was healed up from all this, I, I was still suffering from that nerve damage. I had to wear like these leg braces and stuff because I had no feeling basically below my knee. I had no feeling of my ankle or foot and it would just be like dark blue all the time. And, um, you know, mentally this was really getting to me because I was doing physical rehab and I was getting back to, you know, basically where I should be, but this leg was holding me back. Like it was just mentally draining for me. And after talking to a couple different surgeons, um, three of them specifically in New York said you would be better off if you had your leg amputated, because if you have your leg amputated, we've seen people that, um, you know, go up and beyond what they were even doing before. Like you're at a standstill now with these leg braces, you're not moving forward. At least with this, you have a good chance of moving forward. And after seeing a lot of the wounded veterans coming back, a lot of my friends at this point, Earl, Granville is one of them and seeing the crazy stuff that these guys do yeah. on obstacle. He's nuts. Yeah. Like on obstacle courses and lifting weights. And I'm, I, you know, going back like Earl, I, I actually met him and I don't know if he remembered it or not, but it was back in like 2010. He was at a CrossFit gym and it just opened and he was there and I see this guy doing like pull-ups or like swinging his one leg back and forth. And I'm like, you know, God forbid if that ever happened to me there where I was missing a limb or something or an arm or something, you know, that's the that's the type of person I want to be in. Like that was very encouraging to me, very motivating. And you know, at this point in time, before I had, you know, I made the decision about my leg. Earl and I were actually really good friends at this point. You know, after what happened, and Earl said to me, and it sticks in my head to this day: "You do whatever will improve the quality of your lifestyle." And my, I said that to my doctors, and my doctor said, "You know, that's very smart, and that's coming from somebody who's experienced a similar." circumstance that you have that you're experiencing now think about it and go with it and I sat down with I you know at the time it was my girlfriend now she's my wife and I said you know what should we do um and she said what do you think and I said I just see these guys doing so much you know and the, the advancement in prosthetics now um and basically my my lower limb surgeon told me he said you know what 
it's either we fuse your ankle, which you won't be able to do anything. Um, we do the amputation and or you're going to have to do the amputation probably when you're like 50 or 60 because you're getting limited blood flow and everything like that. You're better off doing it now when you're younger and you could kind of recoup earlier in life and and get back to normal lifestyle. And um, so that's why I decided to do. It. And that was uh, December of 2019. I had my leg amputated uh, below my knee, my right leg. And I'll tell you, it was the best thing, best thing I ever, ever did. Did you ever um, have moments of regret, like well, like right after you look down and you think, what did I do? No, I was actually like, I can't believe this happened. I've been fighting for this for, you know, a couple of years and finally it's done and we can move on. Is It was, Tina, it was the easiest surgery for me, mentally and physically, that I've ever had out of all this. Um, and I've had 23 surgeries to this day. And that was by far the easiest surgery I had uh, was having my leg amputated and um, it just mentally for me it was just like a weight off my shoulders and I was you know once I healed up and I was able to wear a prosthetic um, it was just great I mean the prosthetic company I go to is out of Philadelphia um, and uh, prosthetic innovations and Tim the owner I mean he's phenomenal they're all phenomenal there but this guy knows exactly what he's doing and he fits you for the right leg and he's like hey there's veterans he works with veterans too and he said hey they just came out with this leg for the veterans at Walter Reed. Why don't you try this leg? So he's updated. And there's so many different um, style legs and ankles. Like Wednesday, I actually, I'm going to go try to get another leg and uh, see him. And he's like, here's a list of things. And I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of feet and legs that you can pick from that are just like, but How it's, many it's legs crazy. do you have right now? I have uh, three legs right now. And those different... are not inexpensive legs. <laughs> no. No, like the one I'm wearing now, I, I want to say it's like 40, 50 grand. You wow. Know? Yeah. That's insane. Take yeah. us back then to the shooter. How was the shooter apprehended and what were his motives? What was the reasoning behind this horrible thing that he did? You know, he was captured 48 days later. Our department set up a grid and they said to the U uh, U.S. Marshals that were just happening to be there, they said, why don't you go and sit in this grid today? And that's what they ended up doing. And when the U.S. Marshals got there, nobody was around at the time, but they saw like weird things. Like I think it was like a fishing pole and um, they actually found like one of the rifles and stuff. And but they couldn't find the individual around. So they're like, let's put some snipers up in trees and we'll we'll wait for this guy to come out. If, he, if he's around here, at least wait and we'll see. And that's what he ended up doing was coming out of a tree line. And, you know, they ended up getting him. They held him at gunpoint and. Um, took him into custody and they actually put uh, Corporal Brian Dixon's handcuffs on him uh, to transport him back to our station, which was kind of cool. But uh, yeah, we had a trial. Uh, it was in 2017, full blown trial, which I was dreading. But um, after the trial, I was actually happy because I learned a lot from it that I didn't I wasn't aware of because I was, you know, in a coma for a couple of weeks early on. So I didn't know what was going on. Um, so it was for me, it was very informational. Um for the case and uh the jury actually we got an outside jury from down by philadelphia area and um so there was no um you know no bipartisan you know no partial vigil and stuff and uh they actually found him guilty in all counts and he's uh sentenced to uh death actually so he's on death row right now what were his yeah. motives do you know why he did it yeah so early on i guess his father would implement in his head that the government was bad um you know, uh, they're just evil people, everything like this. Like, I don't know if he was so much like a sovereign citizen type person, but he was just, you know, implementing in this kid's head that 
the government's bad. And he taught him survivalist skills and how to shoot rifles and stuff. And he would allow him to use his his rifles, the father's rifles, anytime he wanted to. Um, but I guess early on in school, the counselors and school personnel said, you know, your son has something mentally going on here. We suggest he goes to like a registered counselor. And the parents said, no, like, we're not doing that. Forget that. And so they were kind of aware that he had a mental situation going on. But I guess from what I've heard, his main reason, he wanted to start an Amer- like a government revolution. He wanted to go after people in uniform, um, shoot them up. For example, the, right before Brian Dixon walked out of the front of our station, Brian was in uniform. One of our um, investigators, our detectives, as you call it, criminal investigators, uh, walked out with a dress shirt, tie, and khakis on, and nothing was shot at. He was not shot at nothing. Um, he was going specifically after guys in uniform because we we're the government and he wanted to start this revolution. And his goal was to, you know, kill as many of us coming out to that front door as possible. You know, as we were trying to help one another, they was trying to kill us is what his goal was. The reason he kind of like missed shot on myself was because I came up on the side of the building. I just, he, he admitted to our investigators that, you know, I scared the crap out of him because he didn't expect me to come up off the side of the building. He expected everyone to come to the front door. And when he saw me, he flinched. And that's why he shot me through my back instead of my head or my neck or anything like that. And um, when I disappeared, that's, but he did admit that. Remember I said, if I, if I try to drag myself straight across into that lobby, I was afraid that whoever was shooting would take a second shot. And he actually admitted that he was looking for that second shot because he wanted to put me down. And um, luckily, like I said, just based on instinct, I went around the lobby instead of straight through. So uh, so it actually saved my life. But, so um, many bad but... things happened that day. But then looking back, as you are now, you can see some of the miracles in that day as well then. Absolutely. hundred percent. There's, you know, there's tons and tons of miracles, miracles that happened. Just not not even that day, like after now, like meeting different people like yourself and just good people. Like it, it's it's, you know, I always say. It's, it was a crappy situation, you know, um, very, very bad situation. I wish it never happened. If it happened again tomorrow, I would do the same exact thing as then. Uh, but there's so, so much good that also came out of it. I, for me, like I met a lot of good people um, and a lot of positivity came out of it too. I learned a lot. You know, I, I grew up basically, is, let's put it that way. And, uh, you know, our message, like Earl and I always tell people, uh, you know, when we're speaking, you know, sometimes like it's like for for me as a, a trooper, we're always like, oh, you know, we're big and strong. We're, you know, I don't need help with this. Like there's always people in the grocery stores or like Lowe's. If I'm picking up a bag of charcoal, oh, no, I'll get that for you. Somebody will say, I'll get that for you. I'm like, no, no, I got it. You know what I mean? And, you know, it's OK sometimes like I realize it's OK sometimes to let, you know, somebody help you. Um, you know, if, it doesn't matter if it's a 40 bag. 40 pound bag of charcoal to lift off the ground. It doesn't matter. Or if it's somebody going through mental depression, if you need that help, you know, you, you ask for it. And for the longest time, that's, you know, I waited and I shouldn't have done that, you know? Um, and I realized that now, like I said, I grew up a lot from, and I learned a lot from different people and different circumstances. What are your feelings? I don't even know if you have any about the shooter. Do you just, not let him take up space in your head? And do you have PTS from that day? 
so yeah i'm i have a uh, severe ptsd um and uh how I does mean, it I, manifest itself like, like what triggers it um you know there's a lot of different things um you know one of them that's kind of crazy uh if you think about it is you know for our daughters uh, if it's at uh 11 and 12 year old two stepdaughters and they're awesome and they know now like what what i kind of been through um they don't know the extent of it but they they know you know i'm i suffer from ptsd and there's certain things and my wife will will let them know but uh one day like early on when i first met them one came up behind me and took a balloon and popped it <laughs> right behind my head and i that like, probably wasn't a good idea <laughs> no no i freaked out you know and i got so mad and um you know, I held my composure. I'm not that bad where like I was watching a movie the other night. Um, I think it's called Thank You for Your Service or something like that. And, uh, you know, this guy was playing a video game or something. And he all of a sudden he went crazy and he's punching holes through the walls. Like, I'm not, you know, thank God it's not like that. But that that scared the crap out of me. And for about five, ten minutes after, I was like profusely sweating and everything. Same thing with fireworks. If I see them coming, that's fine. That's one thing. But if I don't see them and they're loud and I hear a loud noise that that catches me off guard, um, that that wakes me up, you know, amongst other things. But, you know, unfortunately, every day, you know, I have to put my leg on or and it doesn't matter about the, the that I have a prosthetic. If I had to put the leg brace on or something, I would have, you think about it. You think about the incident. Not not it's not like the whole thing is not running through your head, but you think about parts of it and stuff like that. You know, so it's every day you're thinking about it, you know, but then. What I try to do, I think about the good, you know, that came out of it. The the friends that I met, the good people. I'm friends with this great guy, Josh Rainey, who's a veteran. He was blown up like several times. Um, fortunately, he's not missing any limbs or anything. But, you know, he, he suffers from PTSD, too. And we have been literally, we met at an event that Earl uh, brought us both to uh, a couple of years ago, 2018. No, I had my leg. It was 2019. And to this day, we've been calling each other almost every day just venting about like different things or with our families or something or barbecuing or something. And it's just that connection, that camaraderie. And I think that's what really helps. And that's what gets us through. And it gets me through. And I know it helps him. Um, you know, just, just knowing that somebody else is going through the same type of circumstances, you know. How did OEW or Operation Enduring Warrior come into the picture for you? And what kind of help did the organization provide? So again, I, um, like Earl, Earl always talks about it. You know, there, it's important to have a purpose in life. It's important to be part of a team and everything like that. And I, you know, speaking with Earl, I, I say the same thing. And that's, you know, that's what I thought I lost, like with the state police, because we were part of a team, um, you know, working together, that brotherhood and everything, brother and sisterhood. And, you know, I thought I lost that. And I'm like, now what am I going to be part of? And what's my purpose now? Because I couldn't run, you know, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to run. That, that's where I was, you know, at that point in time, Earl introduced me to Operation Enduring Warriors, which, if you're aware, is the nonprofit organization that supports wounded veterans and also wounded um, first responders, law enforcement. And um, they they brought me on and I did this first thing called the Greenberry Challenge down in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And it was like, you know, amazing because you're you're part of this team and you're dealing you're with guys that are dealing with the same or similar issues that you are. Like I was with a guy who was missing his leg from from war and stuff like that. And the other guy was missing his arm. And you're each helping you're helping each other out in different ways through these different obstacles. And it's not about doing so much about the act of um, 
you know, the, the workout part of it, but it's the camaraderie. Like I said, before you meet these guys and you become friends with them and they're almost like family. Like I met Josh and, um, you know, you could call him up at four in the morning and be like, Hey, I'm like sitting, laying here sweating at night. Like I'm having a rough time and thinking about this and he'll be like, Hey, you know, I'm, well, I'm doing this or I'm thinking think about this or do this because that works for me. And, and even with my prosthetics, I talked to like Earl or these other guys and they'll, they'll be like, Hey, try this prosthetic. This one just came out. So it's just, you know, operate. It's amazing what that, that organization has done and what it continues to do for guys. Um, they're always helping guys out. And unfortunately, um, you know, we had some teammates with Operation Enduring Warriors that have committed suicide, um, one of them like recently. And I mean, you can only you could try to help so much, you know, and I believe, too, like it, it, you got to help yourself, too. It's not just about somebody else helping you, but it's, you know, helping yourself. But it's the team has definitely helped me. And like I said, the camaraderie is the most important thing for me. Were you able to pick up running again that you loved so much? So I just started, we, our physical rehab unit here, um, back home, got this machine called an Ultra G and it actually, it's gravity filled. It like balloons. They, they put this thing around your waist and it balloons and takes your weight off. Oh, wow. And I started, yeah, it, it's kind of crazy because it's more for like stroke patients and stuff. And because I had that nerve damage, I still have it up in my, my thigh and, and glute area. So that was kind of preventing me from running, but I started running on this machine and now I'm back to running on a treadmill just without it. Like, so I'm really starting to get back into it. And like I said, if I get this new foot, hopefully on Wednesday, um, then I'll be really moving. But yes, I, I have been running. And one of the things I forgot to mention earlier, when my doctors and I were trying to determine about having the amputation, um, you know, I would get this, what they call phantom pain. So like I couldn't feel anything below my knee, but it felt like my foot was itching and this and that. But isn't it really that crazy? Like I can't remember who I spoke to, but he said that he would actually reach down to try to scratch his toes. Yeah. Yes. And well, that's this is when I still had the leg, and I'd get this like throbbing phantom pain, and I would tell my doctor like I'm getting this pain, I'm getting this pain, and he said when we have it amputated, you might have more of this phantom pain, you might have less, or it might be the same. We don't know. But thank God it pretty much solved that phantom pain issue. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I'll, like hardly any is what I have, but I know what you're talking about. I know what that individual is talking about. Once in a while, it will seem like my little pinky toe, even though it doesn't exist, like right on the side of it or the side of my foot. Like I could pinpoint the exact spot of where this like itching or scratching is coming from. That is and absolutely insane. Yeah. It's crazy. It, it really is crazy. How are you treating your PTS? And what kind of advice or hope would you offer to uh, veterans or first responders who are dealing, or anybody really who's dealing with severe PTS and their feelings of hopelessness? So I just started doing, I don't know if you ever heard of EMDR therapy. Mm -mm. Oh, wait, is that the eye thing? Yes. Okay, yes. But eye movement detection recognition or something and they take that you really go in depth into that traumatic incident and it, it really tries to take that that um like knife point out of that traumatic incident for you and um so far it's working really well um but i go to regular counseling and i do this emdr too and um you know my message to um uh, you know, people going through PTSD and, you know, you don't have to have suffered from uh, 
a gunshot wound, for example. I mean, it could be anything. You know that. Like people go through PTSD for various reasons. Um, going back to like what I said before, it doesn't matter if you, you know if, if you're struggling with picking up a forty pound bag of charcoal or a, a brick or a rock or something. If somebody asks you for help take that help. I think people are stronger. I give them more credit if they ask for help after realizing what I went through. Um, and then, like I said, it, it could go through picking up that bag of charcoal or it could go to, you know, that mental depression, almost suicidal thoughts. Go ask for that help. You you could be the bigger person. Um, I give you more credit if you ask for help than if you don't ask for help. I think you're a warrior if you ask for help. How are we going to get back on track in this country as far as respect, as far as our police officers? Is there a way to get back? Do you have hope for that? Because right now, I don't know about you, Alex, but I feel like as a country, we are so far off track right now. I agree 100%. And to be honest with you, Tina, I don't have an answer for that. If I did, I would maybe I'd be running for a politician. But um, I don't know. It's scary. And it really is scary. Um, I hope it gets back on track. I do. You know, it's not really a joke, but um, I wish I had an answer for you. I can't answer that. You know, um, I would never have imagined, um, you know, uh, joining the state police in 2005 and picturing what it would be like today or what it's even going to be like worse in the future. Um, it just seems like things are getting worse and worse, unfortunately. And speaking of that, you have two stepdaughters then, correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. So if either one of them came to you, they're 18 or 19 and say, uh, I I'm thinking about joining the police force. What would your thoughts be on that? I, I would be happy that they would, but at the same time, deep inside, I would be a nervous wreck. Um, you know, I, I know actually a trooper who uh, I worked with, he retired soon after our, you know, our incident happened. I think he retired in like 2016 and all three of his sons are now state troopers. And I, you know, I'm like, oh, my God, like, because he knows he knows what it's like now, you know, and all three of his sons joined it. Um, you know, I'd be happy for them um, to keep the tradition going, but I would be scared to death at the same time, Tina. Um, yeah. If, if if I was 40 years old, which I am now back in 2005, and they asked me then, say my kids were, you know, the same age as then in 2005 and said, I'd say, go for it. I'm all about it. Go for it. Do it. You know, but now it's, it's scary. You know, it'd be, I'd be very scared for them. Where can we find you on social media? So I'm on Instagram as, uh, at Alex T Douglas, two S's on Douglas. Um, my email is, uh, Douglas D O U G L A S S A T at yahoo.com. I do not have a Facebook account. Um, but I do, like I said, have the Instagram. So that's, and what organizations would you recommend for people that are struggling? Definitely, like if you're a, you know, a veteran or law enforcement, definitely OEW, Operation Doring Warriors. You know, there's there's a couple different ones. I wish there was more for law enforcement out there. Um, there's a company that I'm part of, uh, Valor Service Dogs, which is stationed out of Tampa, Florida, that provides service dogs. And again, they're involved with law enforcement and first responders too, not just veterans. So um, that's another company. I think a lot of different 
groups and organizations are starting to open their doors to uh, first responders and law enforcement, which which is excellent, you know, but um, they're the two main ones that I know of right now, unfortunately. And Alex, what does America mean to you? Um, you know, this every time I hear America, I think of like red meat, like beef, you know, <laughs> that's, you know that's what we stand for. Um, you know, we're a strong country, you know, um, I, I hope we remain a strong country and, um, you know, this is our home. This is, this is what we have to support. This is what we have to secure, um, and fight for is our country of America. Thank you for sharing your American story with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country. 